If you have your Bible, open it to Micah chapter 6. <laughs> Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to worship. And we ask you now to settle our hearts and minds into hearing your word, hearing from you. Holy Spirit, we know that you are in this room with us. We know that um, you are ready to go to work in our hearts. Help us to think and, and consider and contemplate um, rightly so that your word doesn't return to you having only condemned us. But Spirit, we ask that you would work in us so that uh, as we look into your word, it, it convicts us so that we repent and turn away from sin. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, so Micah 6, um, 8 is, is the, the verse that you all know. Last week in, in Matthew 18, we worked through this idea that if God forgives us, we should be a people who forgive others, right? It's pretty, it was pretty simple. Um, and we looked at how, we began to look, I may not have said this, but what we're trying to do is, is look at how the mercy that God pours out on us changes the economy of human relationships. So when you're lost, when you're separated from God, um, you want a justice economy with other people. When you've received mercy from God and you've been saved in spite of your sin because he is kind, you move from a justice economy with other people into a mercy economy with other people, right? Um, and we just briefly made that case last Sunday. This morning, what I want to do is look at another aspect of that, the mercy economy between people. And you could argue that this is the sermon that I should have preached before last week's sermon, uh, because what we're going to see is more precisely what we get from God. And, and it sets the table a little bit better for us to appreciate than how we should interact with one another. Um, the text is important. Micah 6, 1 through 8 is important because if we don't understand and see and, and, and aren't convinced that we have sinned against God, then we're not going to be all that interested in his mercy, right? And thereby, we're not going to be all that interested in showing mercy to one another. So you got to set the table and then you can put the food on it and then you can eat it. But what I've done is we put the food on it and now we're going to set the table, all right? And you'll be okay. We'll, we'll get through it. Um, the other reason that I think this text is important is because I've just been reminded over the last month, being back in the workaday world, where you, you know, instead of being sequestered in my office, burning incense and studying the scriptures, um, I've been out rubbing shoulders with people that don't know Jesus and have been reminded afresh of what they need to hear in order to get their heart to the place where they'll understand and appreciate what God has said. So I want to kind of arm all of us to go out there in a lost and dying world and make the case that they need mercy too. All right. So all that said, that was my intro. Uh, Micah 6 verse 1, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. I don't want to go any further reading this until we all understand that this is God saying to us to plead our case. That's what's going on here, all right? Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. 
Hear, you mountains, the, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And w- w- with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, the Lord is calling people to plead their case so that he can give his case against them. He says, come on, let's go, let's hear it. And the reason that this is important is because if we're going to appreciate the mercy economy that God has us in, we need to appreciate that there is going to be a judgment day. There just is. And the world can tell us that there's not. The world can tell us that we believe old fables from thousands of years ago when people didn't know any better. But the truth is, and what God wants us to know is, that that feeling of kind of nervousness and anxiety that exists in all mankind who are separate from Christ, that feeling finds its roots in the fact that someday you're going to give an account for the way you've lived your life. And it it may look like this. It may look different than this. But you're going to give an account. You can suppress it, you can repress it, you can ignore it, you can lie to yourself about it, but the truth is, God says, you're going to stand before me, it's just going to be you, you're not going to have any clothes on, and you're going to tell me what you did with the time that I gave you on earth. Now, the world hates that. The world doesn't want to hear that, so they say, that's dumb, you're just trying to manipulate people. Okay, well, here's what I would say to people that say, that's dumb and I'm just trying to manipulate. I would say, why is it If God doesn't exist and there's not going to be a judgment, why is it you get so angry at the idea that he does exist and there is going to be a judgment? Because I've never seen somebody, like my kids, as they got older and learned about certain things that don't actually exist that maybe they thought did. I'm trying to be very careful because I don't know (laughs) where everybody's at with uh, Christmas or Easter, right? as they discovered that, it, it, that mom and dad were responsible for some things that happened along the way when they were young, uh, I don't remember them getting angry. I don't remember them being like, what do you mean there's no unicorns? <laughs> or there are no unicorns. Or Oompa Loompas. <laughs> or yellow brick. Like people, when, when, when we're talking about mythology, which is what the world says our Bible is, mythology, when we talk about mythology in general, people don't get angry with you for like really being into it and really believing. I don't know anybody that's mad at Star Wars fans. There is no Death Star. You don't hear that. Right? Or people that are really into Harry Potter are not ostracized and persecuted. Maybe they are. But they're not, they're not put to death for believing in Harry Potter, right? And thinking that it's really cool. But yet this thing rises up in us 
When you say there is a God with whom you're going to have to do, people resent that. They hate you for that. They get angry with you for that. Proof positive, I think these things are true. So God says, arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. What does God owe you for? This is your chance, right? God says, come on, stand up, plead your case. What did I do to you? What are you mad about? You mad about your, your work situation? You mad about your health situation? You mad about your parents' health situation? You mad about, you know, the, the economy? You mad about the housing market? Like, what, what heartbreak does God owe you for? Isn't it true? Like, we've chosen well. We've tried to make good investments. We've tried to plan for the future. And, you know, God allows bad leaders to come into power and run things. And I, like, that can be whoever you want. I'm not just talking about Joe Biden. If you're like, yeah, Trump was a bad leader. Amen. Good for you. Bad leaders come into power and screw everything up that we're working so hard to build. Right? I want some equity in my house. And I can only pay X amount every month. So to get that equity, I kind of need the housing market to stay where it's at. Right? I don't control the house. Do you control the housing market? Well, there's these invisible hands, people and city councils and, and, and counties and states that control that stuff. And when you get that tax assessment and it says your house is worth X and you owe x and you really wish it was worth x so that the o was here like you get frustrated by things like that that you can't control right you get up in the morning after getting the johnson and johnson vaccine and everything hurts and you didn't even want the stupid thing but you had to go get it or you were going to lose your job that creates anger in us doesn't it come on plead your case what does god owe you what did he take from you that you deserve you try to run a small business and it squirrel right into the ground? Make you mad? You lose all your money in the stock market? What does God owe you for? Did you have a crappy dad? Didn't love you very well? What does God owe you for? Like, what is your excuse why you are so miserable and, and mean and nasty? What is it that God didn't do for you that he was supposed to? Plead your case. And here's the complaint of humanity in my experience. All right? So we'll chase this three steps. First, God doesn't exist. That's the complaint of humanity. There is no God. But then you're like, why are you so mad at him if he doesn't exist? And you're like, well, if he does exist, if there is a God and he does exist, then he's not powerful. Because look at all the hurt in the world. Why does St. Jude's Research Hospital have to exist if God is powerful? Why do kids have cancer and die if God's powerful? Or, if God does exist and God is powerful, then he doesn't care. He's not loving. Because bad stuff happens. My life is peppered with heartbreaking events, so God must not care. This is the complaint of humanity, right? So when God says, come on, come on, on, plead your case, let's hear what you got, that's basically what human beings say. I don't believe in you, or if you do exist, I don't think you're all powerful, or if you are, you're mean. You don't care about people. So God says, verse 2, 
Listen, mountains to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So we got to talk. We got to say God doesn't exist. We got to say God's not powerful. We got to say God's mean and doesn't care about us. Now God's going to talk. And basically think about it like this. Here's what he's saying. Listen, if your stuff could be called to the witness stand, your stuff, your computer, your car, your house, your carpet, your things, the things that are around you when nobody else is, could get on the witness stand and testify against you, what would they say? You know what my car would say? <laughs> this guy likes to speed, and he's got a dirty mouth. That's what my car would say. What would your computer say about you? What are your interests, really? I'm sure your only favorite is just your, your, your Bible study site that you prefer to use, right? See, we're a little less puffed up when we think about the fact that God sees and knows everything that we do. And all of a sudden, God's not real or God's not powerful or God doesn't care. It doesn't work anymore because the reality is God is going to call us to give an account and we're going to have our version of events. You were mean. You didn't love me enough. You gave me horrible parents. I couldn't get the job I wanted. My small business failed. My, my stocks were worth nothing. Like We'll get done and he'll go, great. Now, let's talk about what you did with what I gave you. And it's going to get real quiet. Those are facts, folks. Do you ever think on some level that you're a little bit entitled to sin just because of how bad you've had it? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This morning at 1.50 a.m., I pulled into my driveway with with my son because he had a band competition that they didn't get back to the high school from until 1.30, partly because on the way back on this two-and-a-half-hour bus trip, somebody had to stop and do a number two. Right? <laughs> and apparently they took their time. So we're, I'm later getting to bed than even I thought I was going to be. And then this morning, I get up, 7.30, five-ish hours of sleep. And you know what happens when I don't get enough sleep? I get a little crotchety, right? So my first encounter with Audrey... Didn't go great. And neither did any of the following encounters with Audrey. Right, Audrey? Big, big, grumpy, mean face. And I thought early on, I'm like, was not my fault. I'm tired. I didn't get enough sleep. Circumstances out of my control have led me to this place where I'm tired and grumpy. And I can't concentrate. I can't think. I got to go preach. People need to get out of my way. Like, that's what I'm talking about. Do you think it's okay to sin because of how bad you've had it? And the answer is, yeah, we've all been there. We've all thought that. So, God calls on creation to hear his prosecution. And he says, all your stuff is going to testify against you. And all your excuses are going to evaporate. Verse 3. God asks again. Now, all the evidence is out there. You know everything I know. And I know everything you think. I'm God, right? I know everything you think. You know everything I know. Now, please tell me again, what is my sin against you? Look at verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I have a feeling it's going to be a little bit quieter on the second inquisition. 
Like we're not going to have as much to say to God at this point. Because we're going to think, oh, that's right, he knows everything. And he can call the hills and the trees to testify about what I've been up to with the time that he's given me. Right? So there's a little bit of humility coming into place. Verse 4, God testifies about his own faithfulness. Remember how I brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery? I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Well, we got to stretch this a little bit because none of us were in slavery in Egypt, right? So we're going to have to spiritualize the text a little bit. Are you guys okay with that? Has God done good things for you? Hasn't he been faithful in many ways in your life? That's what he's saying. Do you have food? Do you have clothes? Do you have shelter? you got enough health to get up and go to work when you have to? That's what he's saying. So what have you been denied that entitles you to sin against God? What have you suffered that gives you the right to rebel? That's the question on the table. Verse 5. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. You guys know the story of Balaam? Doesn't matter. I'm going to tell you anyway. Balak was the ruler of the Moabites. Israel comes out of Egypt. They're out there in the wilderness, spread out because there's so many of them. And the king of Moab or the ruler of Moab, whatever you want to call him, sees all these Israelite people spread out. And he's like, hmm, this could be a problem. Uh, They could run us over pretty easily and, and be running the joint. So he goes to Balaam. Balaam is like a spiritist, diviner, medium type guy who people view as a prophet of God. Balak sends a few princes to Balaam and says, hey, will you please come back and curse these people that are spread out all over my land so that I don't have to worry about them anymore? Balaam inquires of the Lord and says, hey, cool if I go curse your people. And God says, not cool if you go curse my people. Don't do that. And Balaam goes to the princes that came from Balak. And he says, listen, God's not into that. He doesn't want me to do that. And so they say, no problem. They go back to Balak, the king. The king says, let's send some more princes. Like we'll send three times as many princes this time. So a whole whole crew of dignitaries show up to Balaam's tent or whatever he lives in. And they knock on the flap and he comes out and they're like, how about now? Now do you think you could go with us to go curse God? Because look, there's more of us. And Balaam's like, I'm not sure. Let me check with God if he wants me to go curse his people. So he asks God again. And God, at this point, you know, he's God, so he knows. Balaam's going to do what Balaam's going to do. So he says, fine, go, go ahead. But only say to them what I give you permission to say. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Did anybody think Balaam was going to get a different answer? You know what? I didn't want you to curse my people before, but now I'm good with it. Go ahead. So why is Balaam asking the question? Because he didn't get the answer he wanted. So God says, fine, go, but only say what I allow you to say. So Balaam saddles up his donkey, gets on, he's trotting down the road with these princes to go curse the people of God. I mean, in his mind, he's only going to say what God allows him to say. But we all know what's going on in the heart of man, right? Because we have hearts like men and we know what goes on in our hearts. When we've set them to go do something sinful, we rationalize and justify and reason it out and delay it. But we know ultimately what we're going to do when it's midnight and everybody's in bed. And we're like, what's on the internet tonight? Right? 
We know what we're going to do. So as he's going along, the angel of the Lord appears in front of Balaam and his donkey. Balaam doesn't see it. The donkey does. And the donkey's like, "Mm, not going that way, off into a field. And Balaam starts wailing on this donkey, just beating the tar out of him. Gets him back on the path, right up in front of the angel of the Lord. And the donkey's like, not doing it, lays down. Balaam starts whipping him again. The donkey stands up, won't move. Balaam starts whipping him again. The donkey goes, bro, stop beating me. And Balaam doesn't seem all that surprised that his donkey is talking to him. He goes, stop disobeying me. And the donkey says, look, I've been with you your whole life. Have you ever known me to behave like this? And Balaam goes, no. And all of a sudden, his eyes are open and he sees the angel of the Lord standing there with a drawn sword waiting to kill him. So why does God bring this up in Micah 6, 5? Remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised? You remember? I just told you. He wants the people of God to be cursed by Balaam. You remember what Balaam answered him? Okay, I'll come, but I can only say what the Lord allows me to say. And then on the road to go say what only the Lord's going to allow him to say, his donkey prevents him by the grace of God from being killed. Listen to me. This is us on our way to sin. And God miraculously sometimes providentially hinders us from doing the very thing that's going to kill us. Do you remember times in your life where you've been on the path to something evil and God has just been like, not today. You're not doing that today. Isn't he faithful? Hasn't he been faithful to you? Why are you so miserable and mopey and whiny and complainy when all God has really been to you at the end of the day is in spite of your sin, he's been faithful. That's the question. Hmm. I blew right through all my notes, so this will be interesting going forward. All right. So let's talk about Shatim to Gilgal, end of verse 5. This is pretty important. I'll just read this to you. Numbers 25, 1. This is, uh, so the Balaam story happens in Numbers 22, 23, and kind of 24. The Balaam story, the thing I just told. So Numbers 25 turns its attention to the people of God, right? They're spread all around the land of Moab, not getting cursed. Listen, it's all right. Don't worry about it. He'll still be here after church. You can go hang out with him then. The people are spread all across the land, not being cursed because God hindered Balaam from going and doing that, right? They're not cursed because God hindered Balaam. Guess what they do to show their appreciation to God? Numbers 25.1, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry. That's us. God's like, let me protect you from this evil that's out there trying to come your way and ruin you. And we're like, oh, I've been protected. I'm amazing. Let me go sin. This is us. Joshua 5, which is some years later, after Shittim. They've crossed the Jordan. They're just outside Jericho. And God tells Joshua, you're going to call this place Gilgal because I delivered the people from Egypt to the promised land. And they crossed over the Jordan and it was dry. 
Because God's faithful. This is us. God prevents us from sinning. God protects us from evil. In response, we sin against him, and he's still faithful. And we think, I need to whine and complain and blame God for the difficult things going on in my life. Why are we like this? Think about the lost and dying world. They are completely unaware of how much kindness of God they're sinning against. You know what they need to hear from us? Not harsh judgment, criticism, and condemnation. They need to hear the truth. God is. God is powerful, and he does care. You want to know how you know he cares? He killed his son so that he could be in relationship with you. And this is what he asks of you. Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression or the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What does God want? Does he want you to tithe more? You think I'm up here saying that? You know, you all need to give some more money. No. It's not what God wants. He's not interested in your stuff. He's not after your rivers of oil, whatever that means to you. You know what he requires of you? Verse 8. Do justice. (laughs) Get your scales in balance. Quit ripping people off. Quit lying. Quit stealing. Quit posting that highlight reel version of yourself on the internet that doesn't really exist. Like, be honest. Just be real. That's what God wants. Who are you? Most of the kids that I know don't even know the answer to that question. Who am I? It changes from day to day. As adults, shouldn't we be kind of in touch with who we are before the living God so that we can guide our children into some sense of identity in Jesus Christ? Get your scales in balance. Quit being dishonest. How do I do that? Well, imagine your stuff could tell the truth about your character. Now how boastful and puffed up are you? Now do you want justice? Your stuff is going to testify against you. You're, you can pull it off, brothers and sisters, right? Like you can just show us the parts of yourself that you want us to see. No problem. That's easy to do. You want me to be impressed? Project a version of you out where I see it that looks impressive and I'll be impressed. You know who's not impressed? Your bathroom mirror that sees you when you come out of the shower. That's legit. That's you, right? Imagine your stuff could testify against you and you will want a whole lot less justice from God and a whole lot more mercy. And you will start acting in accordance with justice. Doing what's right. Second, love mercy. Look at Luke 7. Um... Verse 36, Luke seven thirty-six. One of the Pharisees 
asked Jesus to eat with him, and went, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering his thoughts, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they both could not pay, he canceled the debt. Which of them will love him more? Which of these two debtors will love him more? And the obvious answer is, Simeon said, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I answered, I'm sorry, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. You know how you love mercy? You know how you know when you appreciate what God has done for you? First of all, you don't think that God owes you anything. Second, you know that... that, that I want to say this the right way. I feel like I'm getting angry and I don't want to preach like that. You don't sit at the table. Watching someone else do something for Jesus and think you're better than them because you wouldn't do it that way. You just don't do that. You are not preoccupied with how much better you are than other people like Simon. And if you are preoccupied with how much better you are than other people, it's because you think you haven't been forgiven that much. I'm nailing it. I'm amazing. No, you're not. You're not. It's mercy. We need to love mercy. And then thirdly, walk humbly. There's... There's not going to be a lot of swagger in my step in eternity. Like you're going to see me and you're going to be like, if I make it, you're going to be like, is that, is that James? Because he seems humble. So it ought to be that way here, right? Right now, walk humbly with your God. Humility flows from an understanding that what I have, I have because of mercy. Where does humility happen? Listen to me. If you can listen for three more minutes, we'll be done. So listen right now. Humility, where does it happen? Where do you see it? 
Because I know some Christians who are like, I'm humble. I believe that God is magnificent and powerful and could squish me like a bug. And that's where you see their humility is before God. But I don't think that God said, I want you to be humble only before me. Because in Philippians 2, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. What does Jesus do when he gets all the disciples around the table in John? At the end, right before the Lord's Supper, he gets out a basin and a towel and he wraps it around his waist and he starts washing their feet. That's where humility plays itself out, is with one another. You want to know if you're walking humbly before God? It'll look like it in your interactions with people. God is interested in the mercy economy that we have with him playing itself out in our relationships with one another. Walk humbly with your God means it ought to look like you're humble with other people because you genuinely do believe I am the chief of sinners and the least of people. You really have to be convinced of that. Walk humbly with your God. He has shown you, oh man, What is good and what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Now, here's my question for the lost and dying world. And this is the question you can ask your coworkers and schoolmates and friends, all right? What is so onerous about that? Do justice. Stop ripping people off. Quit murdering. Quit lying. What's so onerous about that? What's so nasty about that? What, what, how is that mean of God to say, treat other people with some kindness and respect? Love mercy. Appreciate that there's been forgiveness for all your lying, cheating, stealing, and murder. What's so onerous about that? Why, worldly lost man, are you so opposed to a God who says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to live justly. I want you to love mercy. What's so hard about that? Is he asking so much? Well, then we come to the part that I think is hard. Walk humbly with God. You don't get to be strong and independent. You're going to be humble and you're going to be in relationship with God. Appreciate that he is willing to be in relationship with you. Do you want to know how you know that you appreciate God's willingness to be in relationship with you? You are willing to be in relationship with other sinners. If God who is perfect and who has never sinned is like, I'm going to hang with James Tyler. I'm going to walk with him. Then James better be able to walk with other sinners. Come on, somebody say amen. This is supposed to be a Baptist church. What's going on? (laughs) These things are not easy. But they're legitimate, and it's, they're not hard because they're complicated. They're hard because there's so much flesh left in us, so much remaining corruption left in us. And the church has turned Christianity into don't cuss, don't dance, don't smoke, and everybody will be impressed and start believing in Jesus. When God has said, no, 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 what I want you to do is live justly in accordance with what I've commanded. Love, mercy, that which you've received, 
Give to the people around you and walk humbly. Be in relationship with the true and living God. That's Micah 6, 1 through 8. Let's pray. God, we do love mercy and we know that we live and move and have our being because and only because you are merciful. So would you please help us to get these things through our thick heads and hard hearts that we might be a people in this lost and dying and tragedy-filled world who truly are beacons of Christ's light. Let the church look like we love each other. Let us lay down grudges and stupid things that don't matter and embrace one another, as you said, with a holy kiss. Let there be true affection between us as brothers and sisters, and God protect us from the evil that's waiting to make its incursion into these walls. Help us to remember to live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. We beg you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.